Well, here we go. This is by special request. I've gone into the mothballs and got out the first interview with Dr. David Woods from the Ohio State University. These are good. These are really good. And I'd sort of forgotten about them. And people started talking about them. They sort of hit the, the, the stids again, the stids, whatever stids are. They hit the streets again. And so I thought, maybe let's get him back out. And if we're really good, I'll get David to give us a follow-up on these two. And that'll even give us more contemporary knowledge. He's got lots to say. These are great podcasts. You'll love them. Here we go. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Pre-Accident Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Conklin. This is a very special episode. (laughs) So I'm old, but when I was growing up, there was a show on television. I never watched it, but it was called Punky Brewster. No clue what it was about. But I remember they promoted it. Back in the old days, there were only a couple channels you could get, and they promoted it by talking about a very special Punky Brewster. This is a very special pre-accident podcast because this is a good get in the podcasting business. I got David Woods, and I'm so excited to talk about it with you. Now, David Woods is from The Ohio State University. He's actually in the resilience engineering side of the house. His bio and background reads like a who's who among rock stars. I mean, David Woods was in this process, the new view process, before many of us were walking the earth and many of us were even in school. He has carried a ton of water for us. And getting the chance to talk to him is amazing. But this is a very special episode. That's why all the crap about Punky Brewster. This is a two-parter. A part one and a part two. And so part one, that's this episode. I've asked David to kind of think about the history of the new view. And he's going to start from what he calls the Clambake Conference. And I think there's a lesson for all of us. Every conference we go to should be themed by a really good meal. So you could have the steak conference, the tuna salad conference. I know Edgar Schein and I used to go to a conference where both of us talked about the egg salad, the egg salad conference. He's going to talk about the Clambake Conference and kind of move towards, oh, um, mid-90s. He's going to move towards... uh, the advent of the field guide to understanding human error. But I'm really interested in this first podcast because this is as close to a master class in New View as you're probably ever going to get. Just having the opportunity to sit and listen to David Woods, e- even for 40 minutes or so, will make you so much smarter and so much more thoughtful. And he will change the way you think about the world in which you live. That is a lot of promises to make before you hear the podcast, but I kind of think I can make it and get away with it because it's that good of a podcast. It, It really is that good. Part two will be a scholar sort of thinking about the future, and you'll hear that next week, same time, same place, no big deal. You'll have to live through it. But I want you to really enjoy this. In fact, I want to encourage you to do two things. One is be prepared to listen again. I've heard it three or four times by now, and I will tell you that his thoughts around brittle systems, brittle machines, and how machines and people interface are really important thoughts, and we haven't talked about them very much. I I can tell you why. We fixated on error at the cost of looking at resilience, and and he's going to build a case for that 
why I think that's an important thing to think about. Let me shut up now. That's plenty of time for me. Everything's going great. Um, you know, bringing this kind of podcast to you kind of makes it all worthwhile. Tell your friends and get people to listen to this one. It's that good. Without any further ado, sit back and listen carefully. This is David Woods on the Pre-Accident Podcast. Enjoy. Bon appétit. Okay, we're going. So it's that easy. So um, so it's an honor to have you. It really is totally an honor, even though I know that freaks you out when I say it. But it totally is. It's completely cool to have you. In many ways, at least in North America, everything that we've touched, whether you're in software DevOps or whether you're in uh, a pilot or a medical, medical person or a safety person, David Woods is the man. And the 94 book, um, Beyond Human Error, the one with the curtain on the front, right? Well, that was the second edition. Right? What, what did the first edition look like? Uh, had nothing interesting on the front. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I guess I've only ever uh, held the second edition in my hand. What, what led you guys – what started um, the whole notion of changing the question? Because uh, to me, that's what's so interesting about the work you've done your whole life. Well, the – in some ways, to explain the origins of the Behind Human Error that originally come out in 94 uh, is actually to go back over a decade earlier. Um, and this whole process really started with a guy named John Senders in 1980. And we talk about it as the Clambake Conference because it was held in Maine and they had a Clambake. The, uh, some of the people starting to look at these uh, system and human performance issues and how things can go badly and what are ways that we uh, prevent things from going badly or which kinds of people and organizations uh, keep things from going badly uh, really was uh, a, a landmark event. So Don Norman was there and Jim Reason was there. And, of course, they were just about to publish their work on slips of action in the early 80s. Uh, based on that 1980 meeting and some other trends going on, in 1983, there was a meeting in Bellagio, Italy. And this is where everybody came together and where I, I was there, Eric Hallnagel was there, Rasmussen was there, uh, all of the main players we've, we've heard about over the years. And it was uh, early in this interplay of how should we approach questions of error and how should we turn it, should we focus on explaining error, counting errors, or should we move in a different direction? And years later, uh, Eric Holnagel and I looked back at our position papers uh, and some of the other ones there, and uh, we kind of noticed that there, uh, there was more continuity than we had remembered uh, when we looked back 20 years later. And even at that early stage in 83, we were focused on uh, adaptation. How did people adjust to changing information? How did they adjust to changing uh, situations? How did they adapt? Uh, how did they create safety as the phrase we would use later? Rather than saying people have to follow uh, procedures and policies uh, and the organization should focus on compliance, rather we were already starting to see that the role was, wait a minute, it's how they adapt because the world is – uh, imperfect, our plans are imperfect, and the world continually changes on us. And we saw that er early on. Now, the reason I was invited to the 83 meeting as a young guy was because I had data. And the data I had was from studies of 
uh, uh, emergencies. How did people handle emergencies? And those were nuclear control room, uh, nuclear power plant emergencies. And we had real cases we were looking at uh, retrospectively and interviewing the people involved. And we were creating or staging different kinds of accidents in the training simulator. And so we could get repeated observations of how different teams handled these problems. And we also could design the problems. And so we designed problems that uh, emerged from a combination of events and interactions, much like Three Mile Island developed and evolved, rather than one big thing going wrong quickly. And in this, we found, uh, you know, it's all started with really uh, an initial data, an initial finding, uh, which was that uh, people didn't just get their situation assessment or diagnosis wrong some of the time. Rather, what we found was that the uh, events actually usually started with people having a plausible or appropriate in, uh, initial situation assessment. That meant it was consistent with the partial information available at that early stage of the evolving event. So they started assessing the situation correctly, even though the knowledge and information available at that point was limited. So later on, we might realize that they didn't quite have it right. But initially, they started out okay, given what was available. What happened was that as the incident evolved, new events occurred, new faults came in, new disturbances arose, new evidence came in, uncertainty changed. Sometimes it increased, sometimes it decreased. In other words, the situation kept changing. So the misassessments, the problems arose when the practitioners failed to revise. They failed to revise their situation assessment and plans uh, given the data and information now available. And that failure to revise became, I think, a fundamental finding that has uh, echoed forward and been replicated over and over again. Uh, that's really the issue is can you adjust? Can you change? Can you revise? What is that? It's an early example of adaptation. It's not do you get the diagnosis right the first time. Assume the di initial diagnosis isn't going to be complete and isn't going to hold up over time because often it doesn't. And the question is, can you adjust? Can you change? Can you utilize the new information or do you get stuck? Uh, so that was a great early example of how this thing, how the uh, uh, adaptive orientation and the way that you say, how do people create safety? Uh, how do you assess what makes things difficult for them? And how do you help them handle those difficulties? In our case, how do you help them revise a situation assessment as new information comes in? And this was pretty new. Um, this was a new approach for the academy. I mean, you guys, th this this was a novel approach, right? I mean, this this didn't exist before that. Uh, not only didn't it exist, it was uh, contradictory to the other uh, uh, trend going on in artificial intelligence. People were, in for example, in medicine, were trying to design uh, computer systems that would do diagnosis. And what were those? Those were classification systems. So they took the available data, classified uh, the case as being this or that problem, uh, and that was it. Once we know what problem it is, then there's a set of actions you take to handle that particular categorization or classification. In fact, AI actually called it heuristic classification. Couldn't guarantee it was the right answer, <laughs> uh, but the computer could come up with a pretty good one. And it ignored revision. It completely ignored it. 
And so you have completely different things playing out at that stage, where one, it's all about being able to revise and adapt as things change, and the other, can I get the right answer once and for all? Were you guys seen as, uh, as, as controversial? Were you seen as Philistines? Were you driven to the edge of the village? Well, I wouldn't say, I, uh, as I say in this uh, reflection on the origins, I said it was lonely. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I thought that uh, uh, it was funny because we thought, who would ever publish any of this? And who would read it? And as I, as I tell the story of this new chapter, um, I got an article on a, another study uh, related, but uh, a little different that we did with respect to artificial intelligence systems in 85 in the uh, Artificial Intelligence magazine. And I was shocked that they would publish this thing that was explaining how the AI systems were misrepresenting this dynamic, adaptive human-machine situation. Um, and oversimplifying it in ways that was going to create problems and not get the benefits from the new software advances. So it was a pretty shock to me when, when it actually did get published. Uh, and, but it was quickly ignored. Remember, we – so here's another thing about the early days. We have, and we have it today again too. And I always tell the story is we get people who want to talk about the ways that people mess things up. And I go to them, great. Okay, you want to talk about uh, stories of people doing funny but bad things? Uh, fine, I'll match you story for story on brittle machines. Right? We'll stay up all night. And I bet <laughs> at the end of, early in the morning, I'm still giving you more stories about how brittle machines create unusual situations and people have to come to the rescue to fill the gaps. And the answer isn't that the brittle machine view is right or the fallible human is right. The issue is, wait a minute, guys, all systems, all machines, people, anything we put together has finite resources, right? It's a limited and changing universe. Stop thinking about perfecting one component or replacing one component with a more perfect component. It's not about components. It's a, right. And in some sense, this is building on the traditions of reliability engineering, though in a new way. But consistent with its foundations is that we don't get reliable, effective, resilient systems from making perfect components. Rather, we put imperfect components together in a configuration that allows us to get an emergent property that's better at a systems level than any of the components or a simple aggregation of components. Um, and so that's where the evolution has always been, is how do we get a better assessment of how do we put these components together? What are their relationships? What are the emergent properties? And that leads us back to, again, how do people create and sometimes fail to create safety? And so you guys went on this journey. Did it, did it separate? Did you guys all go in different directions? Did you, did you stake a collective? As Thomas Kuhn would say, were you an invisible college of this kind of new view? Well, I, my label of it, for it then wasn't a college. It was the circus. <laughs> so Thomas Kuhn's Invisible Circus? <laughs> uh, well, we were visible. People asked us to come all around. When there was a new disaster, the different circus acts would come together and show up. There was mine, you know, hyper, hyper fast-talking, loud, 
let's look at all this stuff. And there was Jim Reason's humorous Englishman, uh, Eric Hallnagel's sophisticated Dane. Uh, uh, you know, everybody had their act, so to speak, their style and their approach and their emphasis. And in the series of disasters that continued to motivate and energize this uh, international inquiry into what makes systems work, um, we would show up, you know, after Chernobyl, uh, after Challenger, you know, later on after Columbia. And so that's why I always described it as the cognitive circus. Uh, and it was interesting back in 83 that that was really, the, in many ways, almost the beginning. There were a couple meetings uh, the year before and two years before. But essentially, you could say that that was the beginning of people starting to do their acts and their approaches uh, to these issues that, ha that have gone on. The 94 book actually started with uh, Department of Defense wanting to have a systematic uh, source, a single source to go in and look at the latest stuff about human error and system safety. And the, the key idea for commissioning it was to focus on how new technology could either help meet these demands and help people be successful in creating safety or how the, it, the new technology could undermine people uh, in how they were filling these gaps and adapting to make things work, uh, especially when disturbances and problems arose. Uh, and so the question was, how do you use technology effectively versus how do you create more problems with technology? Uh, and a lot of this came about from the studies with AI and expert systems, uh, uh, other kinds of AI systems, with things we were doing with NASA, cockpit automation, uh, and different studies we were doing. Mode awareness was a new thing we had just found in the cockpits as a problem, a new variation on mode error, which is a human-machine interaction problem. It's neither in the machine nor the person. It's in both and how they interact together. And so it becomes a, a something you have to focus on in design. And by the way, <laughs> you know, we still have mode problems today, even though it's the oldest and most well-understood example of how to design human-machine interaction, either to create problems or to forestall problems, predictable problems. We're still seeing designs that predictably produce mode problems. And then people go, oh, my God, think if people would just try harder. And you go, no, right? We have the science on this. If you create these modes, it's hard to tell what mode you're in. If the modes are active because it's automated, uh, right, you're going to end up in a situation where the machine does the right thing in the wrong context, right? It'll go, I got my instructions. I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do this, but it's a different world than what assumptions are. And the people won't notice the mode gap and they'll intervene. Uh, they'll have too little time to intervene or intervene too late uh, to forestall the problem created uh, with these modes. And we see this in healthcare right now where uh, they created the mode problem with the design of electronic health records. Uh, and so you see this with wrong patient errors. Uh, so you're entering the right data, but on the wrong patient. Or you're ordering the right test, but on a different patient than you think. Why? Because all the screens look the same, right? It's just a name difference. And so uh, it just takes a couple other factors. So this is well understood, but instead we have people running around giving talks about how if people just tried harder and were more careful, this would go away. Well, that's not science, that's not how this works. 
that's not the, you know, that doesn't actually change things for the better. It doesn't reduce the problem. What kept you guys motivated? <laughs> well, that was easy, you know, because uh, every time we got to, got uh, felt stalled and we weren't making progress or whatever, um, unfortunately, another accident would happen. And uh, more than once I had colleagues say to me, uh, what are we supposed to do? We're not having the impact we would like. And I would say, uh, patience, uh, because the world will shock these people who are missing some of the key findings and what are the valuable directions to actually increase safety. And, and unfortunately, um, they usually come in and say, uh, you know, Dave, Dave, uh, we had this stuff and we're surprised. People were, they did things we didn't expect. Can you explain why people did these things? And I would usually go, oh, you designed the system. So that was actually a predictable consequence, right? Uh, the system does what it was designed to do. It's just not what the designer intended. It's not what you intended to happen, but it's actually the way you designed the system. And, you sh and so when you see these unexpected behaviors, we need to go back and, and reassess how the system works because you designed it in a, in, a, in a way that has these uh, undesired properties. And again, what were those undesired properties? Generally, it was a system that was too rigid and not one that was flexible and adaptive enough uh, when uh, the various kinds of challenges and unexpected surprise situations arose. And there was usually plenty of, of uh, early signals about uh, the changing nature of disruptions and surprises out there. They really weren't completely surprises from a frequency point of view. They were surprises from a concept or model point of view. And this was some of the stuff that was going on in the early 80s from many, many different contributors from the previous generation who kept pointing out that these accidents were a kind of fundamental surprise is the label I borrowed from Zvi Lanier, an Israeli practitioner and researcher, when he described how uh, organizations could miss the and discount away the signs that the world was operating different than they thought. And they only recognized the surprise uh, information when it turned into the disaster. And they were forced to confront the fact that their model of how the world worked, how safety was created, was wrong. And, and, and they now had an opportunity to revise their organization and practices to uh, fit better with how do you create safety in a complex, changing world. So is that what you think diffused these ideas kind of mid-90s, early 2000s? I mean, because the diffusion curve on this is really interesting to me because you, you basically are telling them their baby's ugly. I mean, right, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and yet these ideas really caught some traction. Certainly in aviation, they caught traction. I mean, we can, we can pick industries where, where they really took these ideas and ran with them. And, and, and I'm curious, you know, how you guys felt about that. Well, I would say our experience of it going forward was always intention. Um, the good news was there were points of progress. Uh, we were involved. We were. We did have projects. We uh, and studies and and stuff. And there was also frustration simultaneously uh, of uh, breakdowns and, um, uh, and and difficulties. Um, and a good example of this played out with the uh, patient safety movement. So that starts in about 1995, 96. 
uh, uh, as a movement. And so it was a great opportunity. Again, many of the cognitive circus acts came together. Uh, myself and Richard Cook were playing prominent advisory roles. Uh, and in many ways, we were uh, trying to share all these lessons to launch healthcare uh, in a more rapid advance. Given all the work that had gone on previously, but there are lots of ways things get derailed, and sometimes the safety findings are turned not to improve things for the public or, in our case, in the healthcare case, patients. Sometimes it's uh, turned around in a way to make things safe for the organization, so that if something goes wrong, they can deflect the consequences onto other parties or other individuals, so that they can discount the information. Uh, and turn the fundamental surprise into a fine-tuning. Oh, we had a good system. It's just this component was off or just this little piece was off and we can just tune this up and then everything, everything's okay. So that inability to recognize the fundamental surprise and that natural tendency to turn a fundamental surprise into a, um, uh, an exercise in fine-tuning the previous system is a natural ongoing tendency. And it was one of the things that, you know, I focused on a lot in the 94 book. But there's a, another big thing um, that we need to talk about, about what made the 94 book. And we've hit a couple of them, about technology effects, about creating safety. Uh, but the, one of the big things that happened in the 94 book is that's the first time uh, we can't anybody. Uh, we came out and said, "Look, the what's human error isn't about performance. It's not about people or the system. It's about our judgments after the fact as stakeholders. It's a judgment in hindsight about causality. So when we use the word error, we're not describing something, an understanding or a model of how people do work well, or sometimes not so well." Rather, we're describing our reaction to risks and that occasionally those risks become real in failures and tragedies. And our response to those is what is the label error is about. And that characterization of error as our attribution of causality and the biases in attribution of causality and the oversimplifications of attributes of causality um, uh, is what was dominating the discussion and blocking the science and blocking the progress practically. And so that was the first place, even though hindsight bias predates that by book by 20 years, no one had really taken hindsight bias and used it as a way to help understand and explain why we were rationalizing away the signals that we needed to change how the system worked. And instead we were focusing on a component this component, oh, it's human error. That's why things went wrong. And I'll, I'll just do remedial training or we fired that person or we told everyone to be more careful the next time. We're okay now. Instead of doing a real assessment and revision to the, to the system uh, following the event. So that was the major point where that came into play. And we spent a lot of time in the 90s pushing that so that people in the healthcare world, as an example, understood how hindsight bias could undermine your ability to learn and improve on system safety. What's amazing about that, and it is amazing, is that that was, that was a huge turning point intellectually into the, the creating a, the prob a new problem set. What was it that took you guys 
that next step around beyond hindsight bias. So you look at air as an, you know, it's attributed retrospectively. What made you interested in that? Well, so it really starts from the fundamentals. So what's the initial finding? Right? Uh, we use the Swiss cheese cartoon, and I emphasize the word cartoon. I also not call a, it a cartoon. I'm with it's, you. It's not a model. It's a, it's a way to help people learn a general finding. And the general finding is very simple, and we were all articulating it in the late 80s, uh, reason most famously. right? Uh, in the modern systems, single failures are generally not the issue. We've done a good job in reliability engineering, but because we're now working with more complex systems, right, the, the finding simply is, right, it takes multiple contributors, each necessary, but only jointly sufficient, right? Multiple contributors, each necessary and only jointly sufficient. Second is that many of those contributors were present in the organization and operation for uh, longer periods of time prior to the final uh, events preceding the disaster. And so uh, what happens there is that is the characteristic to me of defining what system safety is all about. It's no longer about single failure points. And to simply say human error or an erratic person, right, that's really trying to revert back to an oversimplified past where a single failure point could upset the apple cart of our system and that we needed to do the basic reliability engineering to, uh, to minimize those possibilities for single failures rapidly turning into a major problem. Instead, it was how did these different things come together? And in that process, you could easily see how people would discount or rationalize away these things. Uh, the way I tell the story, and you say, "How did I know this stuff?" It's like it was this—it was the sea we were swimming in, and the reactions to the disasters we were we were investigating or trying to prevent and improving safety in different industries. So, what we heard all around us were these reactions to failure. So, in some ways, it was really the switch from saying, "My data is studying operators handling emergencies," to "My data is listening to different." roles within the organizations comment about what will create safety or what would have created safety in the aftermath of an accident. So I always used to say, I wish I had kept a diary after Three Mile Island of all of the single causes that explain Three Mile Island. How many people did I hear say to me or hear in some context say, Three Mile Island shows just this? And they always pulled out one thing. And many of the one things they pulled out were, in fact, part of the sequence of events. They were part of the multiple contributors. And, of course, then it's easy to say, if that one thing hadn't been there, then none of this would have happened. And we're like, no, that's the signature of a complex event. After the fact, you can always focus on one. And if you change that, not, the rest of the story wouldn't have happened as, uh, as it had really played out. So it's easy to say, and afterwards, I could intervene in many ways. So you pick the simplest, easiest, cheapest way to intervene now that you know in hindsight and you think you're okay. And what you do is miss all of the real lessons. So uh, we were swimming in that sea, and the insight then emerged and became a major part of uh, 94 Behind Human Error book. And that's where you read about that, you know, that it's fundamental surprise. 
it challenges our model of creating safety for as an organization or an industry, and we lay it out for the nuclear industry, and you can see that over and over again. But I think it, I mean, need, it, I think it needs to be emphasized that, that until you guys did this, the traditional view was seen really as the only view. And that yeah. what, what amazes me is that this knowledge was really controversial and really very new and novel and did not exist until you guys sort of willed it into action. Well, we, you know, and, and you can date it back to then and the struggles to get it into action uh, and the backsliding that's occurred over time. But in some ways that gets back to the fundamental thing that it's a more complex world. And it's easy to it's more appealing and cheaper and easier for everyone to deal with the oversimplifications. So the other the other aspect of all this was uh, the um, the issue that it wasn't about human error. It was about complexity. Right. And how were you helping to tame and cope with complexity uh, or were you uh, uh, focusing on individual components and compliance issues? Uh, and uh, coping with complexity. So I remember in my early days dealing with uh, aviation safety and cockpit automation, looking at the NASA people as we were discussing things and me, me going to them, why do you guys want to run into the wall of complexity like nuclear power? Right? You're, you know, you're, you're picking up speed and momentum and what's straight ahead, can't you see it, is a wall of complexity. And it hurts when you run into it or someone <laughs> gets hurt when you run into it. And uh, and I could see clearly how they were doing this, uh, yet they could only see how things were going to get better, faster, better, cheaper uh, by throwing the automation into the system without understanding and designing for the coordination between the people in the automation when non-normal and abnormal situations arose. So we went off and studied that. We studied automation surprises. Uh, we documented these things. We documented the mode awareness and the, and the changes and challenges. And, of course, it's expensive to fix them after the fact when it would have been cheap to have looked at these possibilities for when do, when do abnormal – when do anomalies occur? What does it take to recognize and respond effectively, effectively to anomalies and cascades of disturbances? When, how do you help people – revise their assessments and keep pace with a changing situation. Uh, the actual operators had to do that. And in those early days, how did they do it? By not working with the automation because it was a hard, it was a poor team player. So that's why in you know 91, we started using the phrase, how to make automated and intelligent systems team players. They weren't good team players. And we were studying this in the cockpit. We were studying this in mission control. We were studying this in operating rooms. Um, and how do you get team play was, and coordination was the critical thing. It also led us to study mission control because we saw mission control as a success story. Because I would get the things, Dave, you always talk about things going badly and not handled well by the organization and, and challenges the operators could, used to usually meet but couldn't meet under these circumstances. Uh, what about success? So we started studying mission control as an example of a success story where people were coordinating their knowledge and information. Anomalies were a regular occurrence. And how did they actually figure out and plan and revise and replan effectively to handle the different anomalies that occurred in space shuttle operations? Wow. So what happens then? 
I mean, now now we're in what is it, 2016? I don't even know where are we heading next. Where do you see this all going? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it was it was uh, 16 years ago where um, so you say next, but really it was a judgment we made about 16 years ago that we were. You and I just talked about this, the the tension between the advances and progress and the backsliding uh, and rationalizing away these complexity and system findings. Um, and uh, it was around 2000. And we kind of consciously, myself, a couple colleagues and, and uh, uh, a little bit later, Eric Hallnagel, we said, we're going to stop using the word error. I mean, Eric had been saying we should stop using the word error for a while, not successfully and we needed to replace it with something and so it was in 2000 following some 1999 space exploration accidents nasa had uh, a couple other events around the world that i said look we're going to stop using air and we're going to focus on resilience we're going to the systems will work better if we build up if we understand what is resilience and if we support it if we support this ability to adapt and that's where eric and i went and looked back at the uh, stuff we were writing in the mid eighties and going, you know, this really has been our emphasis all along. And we were sort of pushed partially off the, the best path from all of the misconceptions out there. And that we should focus on how do you build resilience and that that's a positive attribute of organizations and teams. Uh, it supports more than just safety. It supports how to, how to flourish in a complex and changing world. And so literally we made a commitment to resilience. And I mean, that's also a story where the, the tension played out. Um, the design for safety meeting in 2000, I proposed that we could move forward with resilience um, as a proactive safety management tool. Um, by 2003, we had put together a, a team of an organization, a project and research funding to start to try our first case. And in two, later in 2003, everything got canceled. The NASA R&D program got canceled. The replacement vehicle for space shuttle got canceled, and our project went out the window. Columbia happened, though. And I have testimony to Congress, a video and written testimony saying, uh, and if you look at the way I, I helped advise and um, shape a little bit, the uh, incident uh, Columbia uh, Independent Investigation Board report um, that – um, that building resilience and that we could develop a resilience engineering. In fact, we needed to develop resilience engineering to manage and create safety proactively in a complex world. So that was the commitment there by 2003. And given that the programs in my project got canceled, I called up Eric and said, do you think we can do this? What do you think the name should be? I think it should be resilience engineering. He agreed. Uh, how do we get this going? And given his position at the time, he had a little bit, uh, could scrape together a little bit of funding to offset the cost of bringing people together, like in the 2000, excuse me, the 1983 meeting. And so in 2004, we had the meeting on could there be, should there be, how would it be valuable and what would we do uh, to create a resilience engineering? And the meeting had a ground rule, which was don't present your latest stuff. It's let's let's interact and discuss how do we really make a, a paradigmatic change in uh, s complex system safety. And at the end of the meeting, 
Everybody was pretty energized that this was both uh, needed, doable, and necessary. And as a result, all of the chapters but one were written after the meeting. None of them were written coming in. There were no drafts coming in. These were all new pieces that were pulled together and directed uh, due to the energy and insight that, that we needed to move in a new direction and foster resilience rather than try to correct for erratic components or brittle machines. Um, and so we've been in that struggle since of how do you create What's the different senses of resilience? How do you create that? How do you sustain that? Why does it get eaten away inadvertently? How does that lead to uh, increased risks uh, and accidents in, the, in uh, some cases? And we've seen the popularity of that grow. In fact, in some ways, our problem now is it's too popular, and that creates a lot of noise and makes it harder for people to see the fundamentals and to see the practical side of it and what steps they can take because it's become so hyper-popular as a label. Amazing. Amazing. Thanks for your time. <laughs> well, you know, Todd, it's always fun to talk about things, and uh, I appreciate that you uh, are doing the podcast series and helping to communicate and get the ideas and the new work and the continuing work that's going on, because in the end, that's the fundamental value. The fundamental value in safety is something we started saying um, after the 94 book came out as we interacted with people uh, and tried to promulgate the findings and concepts there. And that is our fundamental value in proactive safety is to create foresight about the changing shape of risks before anyone is harmed. Well, if no one's ever said it to you before, let me say this. Thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate uh, Todd that sentiment, and I appreciate all the work you're doing to continue to build the outreach and produce the change. Because in the end, it's all about the practical change in different organizations and different industries that we're all about. If I'm lying, I'm dying. Did you not love that one? Man, I, I know you're going to listen to it again, so I don't even know what to recap. The whole notion of brittle systems and fallible people combining so that there are just enough reasons to cause failure or success to happen is kind of what we do for a living. But I love how he talks about that journey. Um, it, it, this is a great podcast. I can't even wait for you to hear part two. <laughs> so part two is coming next week. I, I, I just I cannot say enough about how significant part two is in understanding part one, but also in sort of figuring out what it is we do and where it is this is all probably heading. I think he's right on target. I, I, who am I to question it? I mean, I, I'm really not questioning it, but I think this is pretty cool. So hold on to your hat, keep your notes, and get ready for part two. It'll be there next week. Thanks for listening to the podcast. You make this podcast go, and it really is kind of amazing how many of you listen. It's uh, a little bit shocking. Um, but I'm glad to do it for you. I can't even wait for you to hear next week's podcast. Until then, learn something new every single day. I know you did today. Um, be as cool as you possibly can. Have as much fun. And for goodness sakes, be safe. Be safe.